this episode, I speak with Tim Chaddick from Reality Ventura on the topic of culture. What is culture? How is it important to us and how we preach the gospel? And how can we shape culture within a church, within an organization, within our families, or within any group dynamic that we're involved in? Tim is a brilliant speaker and author. Really glad to introduce you to him. He has written a few books. I'll put links to those in the show notes. And Tim and I are also speaking at the CGN Calvary Chapel International Conference happening June 26th through 29th in Costa Mesa, California. You can find more information about that by going to conference.calvarychapel.com. Love to have you join us for that excellent ministry conference coming up at that time. It's open to anybody who is serving in a church and would love to be encouraged and equipped. There will be seminars on different ministry areas as well as the main stage topic. And the topic this year is on gospel culture. So that's part of the reason why Tim and I are talking about this subject today. And I think you'll find it interesting and hopefully you'll want to dig more into this topic. Here's the episode. Welcome to Theology for the People. This is Nick Cady and I'm joined today by Pastor Tim Chaddick. Hey, Tim. Nick, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad to have this conversation. Both of us are going to be speaking at this conference this summer, and the topic that we're going to be talking about is gospel culture. So I'm glad to have you on, and I think you probably have a lot to bring to this conversation. Let me just jump in by having you introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us a little bit about uh, your past and what you're doing nowadays. Yeah, so I actually went into ministry after going to Calvary Chapel Bible College uh, in 1999, Wow! so many years ago, and uh, got ordained at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. I was there for a number of years, and then I joined what's called the Reality Family of Churches, which was an offshoot, a mix of Calvary Chapel churches, a little mix of vineyard churches, and I planted in Los Angeles in 2005, so my wife and I, at the time, one daughter, moved to LA, started a church called Reality LA. We were there for 10 years, during which time I had two more children, all daughters. And towards the end of our time there, felt called to London. And so in 2015, we were then commissioned and sent to London to plant a church there. So we planted Reality Church London. And more recently, about a year and a half ago, um, felt that it was time for us to come back to the States. And so I've taken up the position of Pastor for Preaching and Vision at Reality Ventura here in California. So it's been a wild ride, uh, but here in Ventura with my wife and three kids, two of whom are teenagers now. So I've been learning about culture in different ways at this point in my life. Yeah, I've got I've got one teenager. He's going to high school next year. We're excited, I guess, a little bit trepidatious about it. And then we've got a daughter who's 12, so just on the verge of being a teenager. On the cusp. Yeah. yeah. And each one of those cities, it's a whole story, especially when we get into culture and things. Just even looking at it through the lens of my kids who were raised in East Hollywood, then in London, and then to a place like Ventura, it's, it's very interesting to think about even the topic of culture from that perspective, not just my experience, but even my kids and mm. planting and pastoring in those different cities. Some things are similar, some things are very different. Yeah, I'd love to get it's your wild. take on that. My Myself, I've, I lived in Europe for a long time, and then I'm back in Colorado where I grew up. But coming back to Colorado, I've just become 
like very much aware of the culture here, which of course I wasn't so aware of growing up in it. And so it's something where I've come back and I'm able to see it now more than I did before. But yeah, before we get into that, tell us a little bit about, I know you've written some books. I know you're a musician. Maybe just say a few words about that. Yeah. The musician thing is very near and dear to my heart. So I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay area of California and it's a very artistic community. I often joke that my, my teachers in elementary school were all the hippies who left San Francisco after the summer of love in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. And they all became my teachers, lots of weed, lots of dream catchers, lots of granola and science was the culture there but huge emphasis on the arts. It's one of the reasons I actually loved growing up there. And so music just grabbed me from a young age, played in elementary school, and then I sold my soul to the devil, as it were, and sold my trumpet and I bought an electric guitar and I was just hooked. And my dad was a former hippie in his younger years and just loved, he didn't play music, but loved music. My mom was a music teacher. Hmm. So she came from a more classical background. So I think those two kind of met and in the early nineties, everything just kicked off and it was started with Nirvana and then it got into the Bay area scene with all the early punk rock stuff like Green Day and all that. So mm -hmm. I started playing in bands when I was 14 and playing in Berkeley and around kind of San Francisco. And it was my world. Music was like my life, just everything about it, playing music. I, when I was getting towards the end of high school, I wanted to go to college to become a producer. So that was like my whole world music to this day. I do not go a day without listening to music. I absolutely love it, but it was also my idol along with many other things. And I got saved around the time I was 19. And then that's when I went to Bible college and kind of had to relearn a lot of how to rightly relate to things like music. So to this day, I still play. I love playing on the worship team, you know, at church mm -hmm. and I just love playing music and listening to music. I'm a vinyl collector. So I'm a total nerd mm -hmm. and all that. Some of that does come up in the two books that I wrote as well, because so much of the issues we're dealing with in cities and the two books I had the chance to write are very much about dealing with idolatry. The first book is uh, called Better, How Jesus Satisfies the Search for Meaning. And it's really an exploration of the book of Ecclesiastes hmm. and its application to modern life. It's actually based on a series we did in Los Angeles, when the church was going through a period when I was pastoring there, where it was really growing and all these kind of young people or young urban professionals were trying to like make it in life. And we went through the book of Ecclesiastes and it was just amazing what God did. And so that kind of inspired my experience of pastoring people with all their ambitions and all their talents and gifts and abilities. But looking at it through the lens of Ecclesiastes and then the gospel was the inspiration for that book. Hmm. And then the second book is more about character and temptation and it's called the truth about lies and it's very much a it's much more of a pastoral book than my first book and a lot of that goes through not only my experience as a pastor shepherding people in places like la both those books were written in la but also going back to my younger years and realizing how even things like music the phrase that we use god creates a good thing but then we turn it into a god thing and hmm. so I find myself often going back to that, realizing even though I didn't have the language for idolatry at the time, that's exactly what it was. And I think it's one of the reasons why I like shepherding and pastoring, teaching people as it relates to ambition and all that. So those two books were very much born out of my experience pastoring in LA, but also looking back on my kind of 
younger years of which music plays a huge part yeah. to this day. Cool. I, so just having lived in those different places, we, we're going to talk more about culture and define it in a second, but what would you say would be, was LA a lot different than San Francisco and now you're in Ventura, that's all up and down the same coast, <laughs> but are those places significantly different or their commonalities? Yeah, it's a great question, especially when, as you'll know, from living outside of the States in general, whenever you live outside, you do realize how big, not only is the United States, which obviously mm. huge, but California specifically, is just massive. I'm like the amount of time it takes to drive from the bottom to the top is more than it would take to go from the South of England all the way to the North of Scotland, <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. So San Francisco Bay area, if, if I had to describe the difference between the Bay Area and kind of Southern California in general is there was definitely a chip on our shoulder in uh, the Bay Area. Like you just think you're better than everyone else. And I used to hate LA, even a more modern take on that. San Francisco's like, we invented Twitter, but you can use it. Oh, right. I described San Francisco as the cool older brother and LA is the younger brother who always wants to hang out with the older brother, but the older brother doesn't want to hang out with the younger brother, even though LA is more known as this hot seat of entertainment and whatnot, San Francisco has always prided itself on like being farther ahead mm. than LA. So that is a big difference. It's also a little more granola, if I can use that sure. term. Yeah. My wife is from Orange County in Southern California. And when we were dating and getting serious, I would take her up to the Bay Area and she's like, wow, like everyone doesn't quite care as much about how they look. They care more about kind of the things you value, maybe whether it's your politics or it's your, your art or whatever. There's a little more attention to that. Whereas her take, this is her opinion. So listeners don't mm. at me. Her take was that Southern California definitely puts a higher premium on like appearance. Mm. But one of my favorite definitions of LA, and we obviously spent so much time there. It was actually by someone who was raised in New York. And he said, if New York is a place you go to make yourself. LA is a place you go to find yourself. Mm. And that's one thing I think that is very distinct about a place like LA that's different than San Francisco is people from all over the States come and they live there and they want to pursue a career there. It's the place where you're free to fail. Mm. Unlike a place like San Francisco, New York, that's so expensive. LA, you can go sleep on a sofa if you want. So you just find a lot of people who are like, I'm going to roll the dice, go to LA, see what happens with my business or my identity or my whatever it is. Like LA is like a place of experimentation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes it stand out. Mm -hmm. What about Ventura? It's within the sphere of LA, but still different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Ventura is chill. It's a beach city. So it's just an hour north of Los Angeles or less on the freeway it is on the beach it's below santa barbara it's about 30 minutes or so south of santa barbara it's not as wealthy as santa barbara it's just more chill so in many ways you get what is typical california mm. mindset you have the beach you have more of a laid-back culture and yet you're close to la so i've, I've found living here very briefly that a lot of people who've spent too much time in LA and they're over the stress of LA, but they still want to maybe hold their career in LA, even if it's the entertainment industry or whatever, they tend to move out of LA County and then you're in Ventura mm -hmm. County. So it, it seems like it's a place that you get that California vibe, but without a lot of the stress mm. of maybe an Orange County or an LA County. So far in my time here, it's just chill. 
Yeah. It's not as pretentious. It's not as you don't get the hustle and bustle, some of which I actually miss mm. personally, but it's also nice in the same way that everyone's not rushing around and I'm not nearly as stressed as I was in LA yeah. or, or London. Yeah. It's still California, but it's chill. Cool. Okay. So let me just ask you this. How would you actually define what is culture? Like if you were to put a definition on it? Oh, it's such a tricky question. And I'm sure people would answer that differently. One of my favorite definitions, I can't even remember where I heard it from, but it just makes sense to me is culture is the collective loves of a city or place. And I know it's more complex than that, but I've always liked that definition, the collective loves, the things that a place collectively desires or wants or values. I have a friend who lives near St. Louis and he says the culture of St. Louis is very much the Cardinals <laughs> because everyone loves the Cardinals. It's, it's not just because of the economic benefit that a major league baseball team gives to that place. People love it. They value it. If there's a game, like you can just tell a sports team obviously is a great example of there's this collective love. There's this collective value. But maybe the term value is also important, collective value. So to use San Francisco as an example, actually, this is, this is a good example that relates to the music, at least historically, not so much now because everything's streaming on Spotify and place matters less, which is kind of sad. But a lot of the bands that I played in or played around growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area were very um, political. Mm -hmm. In fact, you got your street cred from being political in your message. It was viewed as superficial if it was anything else. So the culture of San Francisco Bay Area was very political and that it very much valued and loved. It's all about the kind of your ethical stance and how you view war and those types of things where maybe my friends who grew up in LA, it was, it was more about the vibe. It was more about a particular lifestyle. Sure. Little politics aren't involved, but you wouldn't say that like politics were the love or what Los Angeles mainly valued. So you can even tell the difference in like the music of a place based on what it valued in the same way, the East coast, a lot of the people I knew from DC or growing up or a lot of the, the bands from DC was also very like politically motivated. Whereas from another part of the United States, it's more about having a good time. The Beach Boys, you know, yeah. like they weren't from Northern California for a reason. They didn't sing good vibrations about uh, the East Bay of San Francisco. Sure. To put it. So yeah, collective loves, collective values is one good and I think helpful definition. What does this city love? Mm -hmm. What does the city value collectively? So what did that look like for you moving to London? And I'm sure there was part of it where you went in having done some work on the front end, trying to say, okay, what is this going to be like? But then what kind of realizations did you have in moving there? Yeah, I think I did what a lot of other people who I'm sure are listening to this, like pastoring a certain place or you're moving to a new place. And we all read the articles, we read the books. I did that a lot when I was living in LA, but that was a little different because I was still from California. But like you alluded to earlier, you... And you would know, having lived outside of Colorado, you almost learn more about yourself when you go somewhere else. Mm. And so a lot of our lessons when we moved to London weren't so much about London. It was more about ourselves. Mm. Like, oh, wow, 
our expectations of customer service are a little different yeah. <laughs> coming from a place like America in general. And then California where, you know, everyone, when you go out to a restaurant in LA, everyone's, oh my gosh, hi, how are you doing? Like our specials today are, yeah. and then you go to a place like the UK where you get the sense that the restaurant is actually doing you a favor yeah. by existing. Yeah. And they're like, what do you, what do you want? And you're like, oh, can I substitute the kale with, you know, coriander? And they're like, excuse me, pardon? Like what? Like you realize, oh, wait, I guess I have this expectation. So there's like little things that you pick up on about the culture, about your yourself when you move there. So I think a few of those things, how much we value independence. Mm -hmm as Americans in, in general, individualism, whereas there's much more of a focus on collectivism yeah. in Britain, much more of a, there's more of a willingness in British culture. This is just my experience to forego an individual, maybe right is too strong a, a word, but the individual will often take a backseat for the collective mm -hmm. good at times. Some of that can be traced back or you at least see it evidenced in kind of the blitz spirit era there's that kind of emphasis on the the common good and a willingness to forego personal desire there's a little more of that still a western city of course but there's a little more of that than you'd get at least in my experience in, in california and then you start getting into more specific differences like how you talk about politics mm. the politics in general are just different. What I actually found it very refreshing just to hear political conversations have a different tone and tenor in the UK than they do in America, mm -hmm. for example. And then of course, in a place like London, you really do have the nations there. So it's not just our experience in London was in many ways an experience of the nations, yeah. even our church reality, church London, as a lot of churches in London do, there's just people from everywhere, Eastern Europe, Russia, different countries in Africa, Northern Europe, Singapore, places like Singapore, China, whatever. You just get all the nations there. So London itself has a very unique culture. So we learned a lot. The, the difference between kind of American culture versus British culture, but also just about our own kind of expectations and whatnot. But yeah, it was a very, it was a very formative experience. Yeah, no, I bet. I remember we would go to London and spend the whole time speaking only in Hungarian. I, I remember going even to Dublin yeah. and some of these cities that I would describe it as a beating heart of the world in a way, because particularly London, I think that's the thing that if people who haven't been outside the United States enough, that's the thing that they would realize is that I, I really think London is the capital of the world in a way. But a lot yeah, of those exactly. big cities in Europe are. Even from Budapest, we ended up planting a church in Lagos, Nigeria, right? Just um, because you just get all these people come in, all the people I going out. It. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being in Hungary and realizing like these cultural things. I remember there was this time when I, I had this realization that, oh, wow. So we've just been doing what we thought was polite, but these people actually took it as very rude. And on the other hand, totally. they think that they're just being normal and we take it as rude. And that, I think that's, like you said, there are tons of definitions for cultures. One of the ones that I've always thought about is culture is basically like what is normal to people and it goes unspoken, right? The unspoken rules, mm -hmm. if you will, of, of, of a place or a community that they don't usually speak. And uh, just shifting in our conversation a little bit to the idea of gospel culture. I remember when I first came to this church, um, 
the pastor I took over for, Pete Nelson, he told me, he said, the one thing he wanted me to do when I, when he was leaving and I was coming was he said, protect the culture. And I had no idea what he meant by that. Actually, I was like, I don't know what that means, but I feel like I want to know what it means. And I'm going to just wait and think about it and try and figure it out. And now I feel like 10 years later, I feel like, actually, I think I do know what it means. And I think that now I can put some handles on it. But how would you define that term that we're going to be talking about like this summer at the conference, gospel culture? What exactly is that? Yeah, it's such an important question because we all know, and I'm sure we'll get into it, so much of how people are formed and shaped is not only by what's taught, but what's caught, as we often say. And to use some of the definitions we just threw out, you said, what is normal? And I said, what's the collective loves or collective values? Gospel culture, how it, or I might say church culture is shaped by what is valued. Now, how people get to valuing those things is what we're going to explore in the conference. That's why teaching is so important. Anyone listening to this who's a teacher or a preacher knows that people aren't just going to remember what you taught. They're going to remember what you emphasized, like what you value. There can be different themes in a text or a, a Bible study series, but what what's the takeaway that people go, oh, wow, this is really important for us. So like a culture of prayer doesn't just happen. A culture of prayer is the result of of talking about it, teaching it, training it, valuing it, emphasizing it, and loving it. So if I were to go to a place, which I have been, churches where we would say, oh, it's a culture of prayer. Did you discover that because it was some rigid thing? It was more of, man, this was like a fish in water. It was just so natural. And to use your phrase, it was so normal. But my question is, how did it get there? So a gospel culture is a, a culture that is shaped by the gospel, that you have men and women for whom they're gospel fluent in the way that they, they talk, they're gospel minded in the way that they think, they're gospel motivated in the things that they do. I think that would be a definition. But I think our question that we want to explore at the conference and even as we're talking now is, well, how do you get there? Mm. If a gospel culture is just that all things gospel are just normal for what people say, do, and think? How do we get there? How do you create a, a gospel culture where everyone's talking about the gospel, thinking about the gospel, acting in light of the gospel, referencing the gospel, watching films that, like I do with my kids and they totally hate it, but I'm always looking for something that hints at the gospel. Oh, they sacrificed their lives yeah. for another person. That's just a hint. And my kids are like, yeah, dad, we know. <laughs> Redemption, blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. Like how do we get to where the culture is shaped by yeah. the gospel is a huge question. Yeah. And so that would bring up another question for me. What does a gospel culture look like? Like, how do you know if you've got it or you don't have it? I think one way to answer that, I even what I briefly said, like how people talk, how people mm. think, and how people act. I think those are three test areas. So when I show up to a church and let's say I'm visiting and I, maybe I spend a few days, um, which we all have, you go on a trip, spend some time at the a church. You might be speaking there or whatnot. You pick up, I, I pick up first on the things that they say. And you notice how I've, there's actually several instances that I can think of now where I visited and these people were just talking about, just constantly talking about how they're shaped by the gospel. Oh, you know what God did? And as I realized what Christ did for me, 
I then changed the way I spent my money. And you're like, Ooh, yeah. that, that's very gospel-y. I could say that. Mm -hmm. And then you walk into a church and you see the types of things that like, what are the uh, events and programs or how's the church structured? Like you begin to pick up on, Oh, they're investing time and money into this. They have employees who are doing like, there's like a gospel fluency class. There's a heavy emphasis on evangelism. There is a heavy emphasis on like, how do you bring your faith into your work? There's justice and mercy ministries like flowing out of this. They're talking about it. They're advertising. You're like, oh, those are the things that they do. Mm -hmm. And then you hear the teaching. You hear the, the preaching. Is it a gospel-centered sermon or is the gospel just glued on at the beginning, middle, or, or end, which I know is a whole other topic, Christ-centered mm -hmm. preaching. But those are the things I pick up on. Like, how do people think? How do people act? How do people talk? And if you begin to notice like a gospel emphasis there, like always bringing it back to the motive of, of, of Christ and what he's done for us is where you can begin to pick up on, oh, this is a gospel culture. I've heard Sam Albury describe one thing he says is he thinks is a marker of gospel culture. He says it's when, and I'm not sure how you would ever measure this except for yourself, but how when you enter the church, you breathe a sigh of relief as opposed to having to tense up and prepare yourself to enter into that church because you know that it's going to be a place where you're going to receive grace and be welcomed and all these things. I thought that was a good, yeah. That is beautiful. In fact, it reminds me of my experience when I became a Christian in Northern California. I was on a trip in Southern California and I visited Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa mm. in Orange County. This is like in 1999. And I was so, I was part, I was very afraid to walk into church. I'm still a new Christian. I looked super, I don't know, whatever, edgy. And as I walked up, I noticed that all the ushers were wearing like these really nice clothes, like suits and ties and everything. And I immediately began to tense up and I was like, oh shoot, like these aren't my people or whatever. And I walked into the lobby and this one guy, suit and tie, the whole deal, holding his like church bulletins. He comes up to me and he just grabs me and he hugs me. Oh man. And I almost just started crying. Wow. And I was like, oh, I'm here for that. Whatever this is, I'm here for this. This guy looks different than me. And yet he didn't like, judge me or tell me to leave. He like, he hugged me. And yeah, I will never forget that. That's amazing. Experience. And I, I think Sam Albury's right. And I think on that definition, you can also tell when a church has an anti-gospel culture, mm. or maybe I should say a law culture, because mm -hmm. I've also been to churches where it's not gospel-centered or grace-infused. It's very much like a merit culture. Mm. One of the first churches I visited when I was a new Christian was an old-school Pentecostal holiness church, and I had a terrible experience there. I was judged mm -hmm. by the way I would dress. The preacher actually pointed me out. Really, And then my whole interaction there, I'm not trying to make a blanket statement on a whole denomination, but it was all like, you need to, you need to like do this. You need to do that. It was all law. It was all, here's what you got to do to clean yourself up. Here's what you got to do to change. You've got to try to do this. You've got to try to do that. You got to try to speak in tongues. Like I did not leave there experiencing any burden being lifted. And that's because they weren't telling me that Jesus is the one that, that does that. Mm -hmm. They assumed the gospel, but they didn't preach the gospel. 
And I did not feel there with a sigh of relief. Yeah. I remember one of the first, so when I got saved, I was 16 and I started uh, looking for a church. And so I, I didn't know very many Christians. So I just asked people who were like my friends in high school, Hey, do you know of any churches? One of my friends was like, Hey, you should come with me to this church that I go to. So I went there and it was like this feeling of, I need to find the door and run out of this place. And then I remember going to the church that I ended up staying at and just feeling this sense of, wow, like this is a place with uh, where I could stay and learn about Jesus and, and get plugged in. And yeah, I was going to ask you that. Have you ever been in a place where there's a disconnect between the doctrine? Because on the one hand, you said that like, you love these things, you value them. I wonder if there are times when people would say, hey, we value grace. We might even name our church something to do with like grace or God's love or something like that. And yet um, that's not the vibe of the place. And what do you think, mm -hmm. what do you think leads to that? What are some markers of it? Because people might be saying, how do I know if that's me or how do I know if I've got it or don't? What would you say to those things? Yeah, that is such an important question. I have experienced and, and I'm not in, in, giving my take on that. I'm not like saying I'm above the, none of us are above this. And I think we're all asking these questions because we want to make sure that we're creating a gospel culture where my mind goes is I do think a lot about what's being taught and not just what, but how we've all heard the sermon where again, Jesus and his redemptive work is assumed, or maybe it's clearly stated, but it's not referred to as the motive that they're appealing to. It's not being appealed to as the basis for your transformation. You're very much left with law. And not only that, but it appears that the preacher in some of my experiences is most excited about the law or most passionate about the law. Those formative years. And as I was a new Christian, when I was like visiting churches and when I was at Bible college, Calvary Chapel Bible college, great experience, but we were encouraged to go out and try different churches, just see what they're like, see what's out there. And so my, my wife, when we were dating at the time, we'd go out and check out all these churches, man, there were times where it was very much, yeah, Jesus died for your sin, but <laughs> like literally they would say that yeah. I'm like, you need to, it was just all like, and that was that you were left with the impression, like, dude, that guy was most excited about what he said mm. at the end. And he almost like. If you do this, then you're a real quick Christian and you get this like second class citizen, like, man, if you were really disciple, it's, it's all about how much you sacrifice and how much you give. You were not left with, oh, it's not about what Jesus gave, what he sacrificed. It's about what I give and what I sacrifice. So my mind does go to the teaching because mm -hmm. that's obviously, I think we'd all agree. That's probably one of the most formative aspects in the life of the church. Sure. But then I do think it goes to the way you structure the church. If that's what the the preaching is most excited about, then naturally, what are your small groups going to be like? What are the things that you're going to emphasize? What kind of classes are you going to run? What's going to be how to be a good family, not a gospel family, a good family, mm -hmm. or how are you going to be a good citizen? It's the, it, it begins just like uh, when I used to make mixtapes, this is a tired analogy. You would duplicate one tape to the next tape. And then I would take that tape and then duplicate it to another and you lose a generation, right? The sure. quality becomes worse and worse. The kids will never know yeah. with their Spotify. The kids will never know, yeah. but you lose a generation. And I think that is what happens. None of those people would deny the gospel in any way. It was assumed, but what they were most excited about, what they emphasized very much was law. And then you began to see that in the way they structured 
the church and even in the way that they greeted one another. Because mm. contrasting the experience I had at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa that day where the man hugged me, I've also had the opposite experience. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned that being hugged at the church there. That reminds me, Greg Opine, he always told me, a friend of mine, he was a pastor in Hungary too, and he said that he says he remembers the first time he went into Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. He says he doesn't remember what was uh, said. He just remembers the way that Chuck Smith made him feel as he was talking about mm. the Bible, that he said that whenever he talked about Jesus, Chuck would smile. And he said that left just such a major impression on him. And, and so I found myself, I remember just, this is maybe a couple months ago, I noticed this, that as I was talking about the gospel as part of my sermon, I, I was naturally beginning to smile. And I thought, you know what, I should go with this and make sure that when I talk about something that's truly good, that it's emphasized in my demeanor, in my tone of voice, in my, even in my facial expressions. So what's crazy, I have a card sitting here on my table right now, just got it in the mail. And somebody said, hey, I just want to thank you. I've grown at the church, et cetera. And then they mentioned this and they're like, and whenever you talk about Jesus, you smile. And just to think that becomes those little kinds of things that you, um, these are the intangibles, right? I think so many times people totally. think like it's, oh, I said this. Why aren't people doing the thing that I, I mentioned in this sermon? I think it, like you're saying, it's not just what you mention once. It's what you emphasize. It's those, all those little parts of communication that are beyond just the words you say. Totally. And uh, that person who sent you the card probably can't remember your brilliant three points. Probably, yeah. But maybe they remember the overarching theme and Jesus. Mm. But I think that's such an important point because not to get into the weeds, but let's take politics, for example. That's something I'm hearing a lot right now is that the church is becoming known for politics. Now, it's not that Christians or churches should never talk about politics. Of course we should. But is that like the thing? Mm. Yes, Jesus, et cetera, et cetera. But now, and then they riff for 20 minutes on particular political ideology or political practices or how the church needs to get involved. And again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't say those things, but if that is on repeat over time, then the culture is going to be what? It's going to be political in nature. That's people's natural go-to. That's what they think about when they think about that preacher, because that's what the preacher was most excited about. Even if they rightly exegeted and exposited a passage, mm. it's, man, what are they What's thrilling them or what's their like passion? And I'm not just even talking about a personality, but you can just tell like you, like that mm. person in your, your church, like, man, mediated through Nick's personality. I could tell that, man, that the Jesus moment is the best moment. Yeah, yeah. That's what we want to be shaping the, our churches. What would you say like to the person who's, okay, help me, Tim, what would you, give me some advice. What can I do to begin shaping a gospel culture, whether it's in my organization or in my church or my staff, what, what would be some good places to start? I'd say three things you, and it, this is not cheesy, but you have to start with your heart. I think number one, and then I'm thinking mainly of the position that I hold, which would be like the teaching position. So people could translate this to position in their church. But I do think you got to work it into your heart. You got to work it into your teaching and then you have to work it into your structures very mm. practically. So working it into your heart is like it, what I wouldn't want. I don't think any of us would want someone to hear this and take away. Okay. 
when I talk about Jesus, smile. Right. And they put in their notes, asterisks, smile big. Yeah. Like that's just performative. That's stupid. But what you do need to do is, man, am I really valuing Jesus? I've got to work this into my heart through prayer and my own study. And I had my own personal kind of, I don't know if I want to use the word revival, but when I started Reality LA, I was just doing my expository preaching thing. But it was when in my first year and a half in planting the church, I started preaching the book of James. I actually heard you at the Expositors right. Collective recently doing a passage on the book of James. And anyone who knows James knows that there's a lot of imperatives in that book, and it would be very easy to teach it in such a way that it leans on the law side. But it was as I was teaching that book to all these new believers, it made me realize how much I needed to remind myself that this is all gospel-motivated, grace-fueled mm. effort. But I had to work that into my own heart. And that's what made me so excited. Just personally, I had a mini inward revival of, oh my gosh, the gospel Jesus makes this possible. It's not a heavy burden. And then that came out in the teaching. Mm. And I had to make sure that was very clear that I'm not just riffing about the gospel, but that I'm really thinking, man, I don't want people to listen to this whole series, work through the book of James and leave thinking that it's all based on the power of the flesh or human ability or human motivation to live this out. Like, I do not want them to think that. So I've got to make it absolutely clear every single time. And I haven't even read the gospel center preaching books yet. I just realized I've got to do this. It's what's motivating me, changing me. It's what causes me to light up. I've got to make sure that I'm teaching that. And, and then contrasting what's law-based obedience and what's grace-based obedience, making that very clear in the teaching. Mm. So that's the second thing. And then the third is like how you're structuring it. And I guess what I mean by that is every church has different small groups, life groups, community groups, Bible study groups, whatever it is, is the material that you're giving them, is the training that you're providing for them, emphasizing the gospel. Mm. Is it, are the question, discussion questions phrased in such a way that it's highlighting the importance and centrality of the gospel when you're doing mission and outreach or mercy and justice ministry? Is the material, the, the slogans you're using the videos they're watching is it using the gospel as the primary motivation and the grounds by which you're doing that and the way in which it shapes the way you see the people that you're serving just all that kind of stuff the way that you structure the church is so important to like make sure that the gospel is explicit in all those areas because what can happen is your heart can be changed the teaching could be great but all the other aspects of the ministry in the church don't have that same emphasis. And that's where you go back to the cassette tape being dubbed. It just begins to lose a generation. So I think those are the three things. You got to get the gospel in your own heart. That's what makes you passionate. Get the gospel into your teaching, make sure it's central and get it into your structures and your systems and your training and your resources and all that. I think it's huge. Yeah, that's fantastic. A couple of years ago, we we went through a thing where we realized that like our children's ministry was totally like our, our lesson plans and things like that. They were totally moralistic, right? Hey, this guy didn't lie and you shouldn't lie either because lying's bad. The end. And we were like, wait a yep. second, shouldn't we be teaching our kids to think in a gospel manner? And then an uh, even more recent realization is just, um, as I've been, as our staff has been growing, it's just this realization that, okay, we need to bring even these kinds of gospel, this gospel culture needs to permeate our staff. It needs, we need to create those kinds of values and those structures and things like that. No, that's really good.
Now, so your topic is a culture of resilience. How does that relate to gospel culture? Yes. The reason that I chose that topic, they, I, I, I was asked early enough to where I actually got to choose my topic, which is great. Not that it's bad when you get handed a topic, but resilience has been on my mind and in my heart for several reasons. One, I've seen a lot of people burn out more than ever. I don't think that's news to anyone, especially in the last few years, all the social pressures and everything. I've seen a lot of people burn out. I've also seen a lot of, not just people in ministry burn out, but I've also just seen kind of churches in, in general, just like caving in or just wanting to raise the white flag of surrender in the midst of all the culture wars, pressures, cultural pressures, political pressures, whatever it might be. Like, I just see so many people who are exhausted and who are tired and just ready to, to give up. And I've experienced that as I'm sure many have in very specific seasons of, of my life. And I am absolutely convinced. And I think of course, Paul, the apostle, and uh, in particular, I'm going to be looking at, um, his letter to the Thessalonian church as an example of a resilient church. Cause some of his other letters, he refers to, here's the opposition, here's the opposition, but you guys have stood fast. You guys have stood firm. So I'm interested in and excited to explore that theme of resilience because we all need it because people are giving up left and right or they want to, or I even want to just ask people at the conference specifically, like on a scale of one to 10, if one is, I want to leave immediately, I already have my resignation letter, like in my save as draft folders or 10, my ministry is an inspiration to all those (laughs) in my church. Don't answer it out loud, but like, where are you at? Yeah. My wife and I went to a marriage retreat recently. First one we've ever gone to that we weren't involved Mm -hmm. in. It was amazing. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend it for any married couples. But they asked that question regarding your marriage on a scale of one to 10. It's like one, I want to leave 10. My marriage is an inspiration. And as my wife and I were reflecting on marriage, I was also thinking about ministry because earlier that day I'd talked to one of my dear friends who's literally, I'm out, Mm -hmm. I'm done. I I cannot deal with this anymore. The pressures, the cultural pressures, the emails I'm getting every day, every week. And I just think a lot of people are there. And so I want to see what does the word have to say about how the gospel produces resilience? How does that work? What does that Mm -hmm. look like? What is it that I need to pay attention to? So I'm allowing the gospel to produce resilience so that we can outlast the opposition, outlast the, that's the beautiful story of the Christian church, Roman empire, like Christianity grew from what, 10,000 to 25 million in 300 years, all while being illegal. Yeah. I'm like, man, I'm in for that's gospel resilience. I, we need that. Yeah, no, that's super timely. Just, I was looking earlier this year at some stuff from Barna research and just over the course of, I think, six months, they were saying that the number of people who were resigning from ministry, they even call it the great resignation. I don't know if you've heard that term, but that was like a thing that's being used right now. And just saying that a lot of people, and I know, man, I know a handful of pastors just here in my town, uh, not from our church, but who resigned during it. And they're like, I'm a realtor now and I love it. And is that good? (laughs) And part of you is, tell me how good it is. (laughs) Right. Tell me people don't send you emails complaining about your sermons anymore. (laughs) Yeah, no, that sounds great and super relevant to where we're at. So final question and not anything to do with culture, but just you personally, what does the future hold for you, Tim? 
I'm in a season of life. I'm 43. My out of my three kids, my oldest is almost 18. My middle daughter's 15. My youngest is 10. We obviously lived LA, planted there for 10 years, London for five years. Reality Ventura, where I'm at now, is a totally established church. It's been around for a long time. And so for the first time for me in ministry, I'm in a position that I didn't create for myself in a church that I didn't plant myself. And I, I have more margin than I've had in the past be, because of that. People are automatically trained to go to me for everything. There's been a, a culture that can use the word of like plurality, like every member ministry, which is super healthy and such a testimony to the people who've been leading this church for a long time. And so one of my passions in this season, and I hope the years to come is I want to invest in other church planners mm -hmm. and I want to invest in other pastors in general, but also particularly younger pastors. I'm only in my forties, so I'm not there. I'm not at the sage level. I'll probably never get there, but someday I will be older. Brian Broderson, who in my mind is like a sage, mm -hmm. like I just, he's got decades and decades of experience. I'm in the middle and I want to offer the lessons that I can especially for people who are leading and planting in hard places, cities, not even just big cities, but just very difficult places. Like I just relate to those struggles and there are things I've learned and there's things I've learned from other people who are super seasoned that I've tried to just curate and I really want to pass that on to other people. So I've never had the uh, bandwidth to, mm. to do that. Not that I was even at the age or maturity to do that. And I'm not saying I'm, I'm there yet, but, and as much as I have learned, I do want to pass it on. And I do find that's what, when people reach out to me, that's what they want to know. Like, Matt, how did you plant the city? What were the key things in those early stages? How did you deal with the pressures, both family and ministry and city? That, that's what I'm excited about. How can I help train up the generation beneath me as I'm continuing to learn from the generation before me? That, that's what I'm really excited about. That's how I want to spend my 40s yeah. and beyond, hopefully. That's exciting. That's cool. Tim, thanks so much for sharing your heart and sharing your thoughts. Uh, really helpful stuff here. And um, just a final plug for the CGN conference coming up. It's the last week of June. And the way to sign up and get information, just go to conference.calvarychapel.com and you can find out all the info on there. So thanks again, Tim. God bless you and your ministry. Yeah, thanks, man. Totally enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Theology for the People. I will be back with you next week with an interview I recorded with Dean and Sarah from Tallahassee, Florida. Dean is a pastor and author. He recently wrote a book on the topic of purity culture. Now, some of you may or may not know that purity culture was a big thing in the 1990s. There were things like I Kiss Dating Goodbye, a big push on purity rings and things like that. And some people who grew up in that, they feel that it was very toxic in some ways. And Dean actually agrees with them. But Dean wrote a book called Pure in which he argues against some of the pushback that has come, the pendulum swing, if you will, against purity culture that has tended to not just push back against that cultural expression and some of the wrong emphases that were part of it, but even against the biblical sexual ethic that underlies it, which he says should not be cast away. And he gives some reasons why. It's a good discussion and 
Dean is a really great speaker and somebody I think you'll really enjoy listening to. So stay tuned for that episode. If you haven't yet done so, we would love to have you check out the CGN Calvary Chapel International Conference taking place in Costa Mesa, June 26th through 29th. You can find information about that as well as a place to register at conference.calvarychapel.com. If you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, please do so. I would be honored if you would give a rating and review on your podcast app, especially written reviews are really influential in helping boost this content in the different algorithms that choose which things to recommend and put in people's feeds. So if you would be so kind as to leave me a review, I would very much appreciate it. And if you haven't yet done so, check out the book that I wrote. It's been out for three months now, and it's been doing really well. If you haven't yet read it or got a copy of it, I would love it if you'd check it out. I'd be honored. It is called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. And you can find it on Amazon, or you can find it on my website, nickkady.org, and click the tab for book, and you can find that, find places to purchase it, as well as what the topics are that I cover in the book. I'll be with you again next week. God bless you.